Our gospel lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. Now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said this, all his opponents were put to shame. And the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things he was doing. This is the word of God for the people of God. A few weeks ago, I was at a meeting chatting with another pastor, and at one point in the conversation, she said to me, I bet you're a one. You sound like such a one right now. And I had absolutely no idea what she was talking about until she said, On the Enneagram, you're a one, aren't you? Now, if you're not familiar with the Enneagram, it's yet another one of these ways of mapping out your personality. And it got me thinking of just how many personality tests and personality mapping systems there are out there. We've got the Enneagram, we've got Myers-Briggs, we've got Strength Finders, we've got DISC, we've got horoscopes, we've got those little tests on Facebook that tell you which Disney princess you're the most like. And to answer your question, yes, I've taken it. (laughs) And I'm a total belle from Beauty and the Beast. (laughs) But you already knew that. Now, I have a healthy skepticism for all of these because as far as I'm concerned, there is only one true way to get to nobody's personality perfectly. You've got to play a game of Monopoly with them. Because when you play Monopoly with someone, you know you see sides of them that you just don't normally see. So there are the people who are just out to have a good time. There are the people who really don't care too much about winning, and so they do things like give away property just to make sure everyone stays in the game. There are the cheaters. In fact, cheating is so common in Monopoly that they have an official cheaters edition out, which seems like a paradox, but whatever. There are the hyper-competitive people. I'm not going to call anyone out, so I won't name names, so I'll just say that I once saw your senior pastor, who shall remain nameless, keep, <laughs> keep a very pregnant woman up past her bedtime just to win a game. And she, she did. And she mentioned that. <laughs> now, as for me, I'm the rule-obsessed player. And I like to think that I am rule-obsessed for incredibly noble reasons. 
It's because people tend to make up a lot of their own house rules for Monopoly, and I just want to make sure that everyone knows what those are ahead of time so that no one makes any bad decisions or gets taken advantage of by the very competitive player. Everyone should know the buyback value of a house or how many you're allowed to have on a property at a given time because these things can be life or death, people. But here's the thing about the rule-obsessed player. Even though I may have all the noble intentions in the world, I'm still kind of ruining the game, aren't I? Because let's face it, no one likes playing a game across from someone who's constantly saying things like, actually, that money should go into free parking because you owe it from a chance card. And I know what you're thinking. What kind of maniac doesn't know that money from chance cards goes into free parking? I'm thinking the same thing. But look, here's the thing. Without rules, you can't play the game, right? Without rules, you can't play the game. But with the rule-obsessed, like me, it's no fun playing the game. In our gospel lesson this morning, we find Jesus teaching in a synagogue during the Sabbath. And there was a woman who was there whose back was bent over so badly that she hadn't been able to stand up straight for 18 years. Now, let's think about this for a moment. This was probably some sort of arthritic condition, which means that there was likely a lot of pain associated with it. And let's remember that pain management has come a long way in the last 2,000 years since this story took place. But let's also remember that this condition was likely causing this woman to be pretty immobile, which means she's cut off from the world. It's not like she can stay home and keep up with her friends over the phone or keep up with the news on her television. In the first century, women did things like go to the market to shop together or go to the well together to get water. And as they did this, they would talk. And the social aspect of chores was crucial. And this woman couldn't do chores anymore. So she didn't have part of that anymore, or at least she had very little part in that anymore. So all of this is to say that this woman didn't just have an issue with her back, which probably would have been bad enough, but this back issue also led to pain and isolation for 18 years. This is why I think it's interesting what Jesus does next. First of all, Luke, the guy telling the story, says that Jesus saw the woman. Now, there are a lot of words in the New Testament that are translated into our English word see, but the word here means something more than just giving something a passing glance. So think of it this way. I'm not massively into art. I love going to art museums. I'm the kind of guy who likes what he likes, but he can't really tell you why. But I really like watching people interact with the art in a particular art museum, especially the pieces with big names attached to them, because if something says Monet or Jackson Pollock next to it, there are two things that are likely to happen. One is that someone will look at the painting and then they'll look at the plaque next to it and they'll say something like, oh, cool, I've heard of them before. They'll pull out their phones, they'll take a selfie with the painting, and then they'll walk away. Did this person see the painting? They have photographic evidence that they did. Of course they saw the painting. <laughs> but then sometimes you get these people who stare at a painting and sort of get lost in it. They look at it from different angles. They get, they get what looks to me like inappropriately close to the painting. And they get me thinking, if you sneeze right now, 
some intern is going to have so much work to do. They saw the same painting as the first person, but they really saw the painting. And that's the word that Luke uses for how Jesus saw this woman. He didn't just look at her. He really saw her. And this word for see can also be translated as a visit. It's that intense. Which is why what Jesus says to her when he heals her makes a lot of sense. He says, woman, you are set free from your ailment. He doesn't say your sickness is gone or you can stand up straight now or ta-da, which is what I'd be tempted to say, (laughs) which is probably why God didn't give me the gift of miraculously healing people. He says you've been set free from your ailment. You've been set free from your ailment. Why? Because Jesus actually saw her. He knows that this isn't just about a sickness that needs a cure. It's isolation and pain and lack of dignity all balled up together, and it's begging not just for a cure but for actual liberation. So the woman stands up straight and praises God after Jesus says this to her. And what happens next? Well, apparently there's someone there who likes to play religion like I like to play Monopoly (laughs) with all the rule obsession that he can muster. And apparently rule obsessing doesn't just ruin game night. (laughs) This guy says there are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days to be cured and not on the Sabbath day. Did you catch that, by the way? how the guy says, come on those days and be cured. He still thinks this is about back problems, which shows that he's not seeing the woman the same way that Jesus is. His focus clearly isn't on the woman. What's his focus on? The fact that this healing can be construed as work, which shouldn't be done on the Sabbath. He just witnessed a woman that he's been walking past for the last 18 years get healed instantly, and that's all he can think about? Really? Now, I want to be sympathetic to this guy for a moment because Sabbath rules weren't arbitrary. They were rules that were put in place to ensure that people had rest and they weren't taken advantage of. They were there to help people remember that there's a rhythm in creation that involves rest. In short, Sabbath laws kept people in touch with God and with creation. And they were also really complex. For centuries, you find ancient rabbis trying to figure out what exactly constitutes work on the Sabbath. And these writings are so detailed that you can even find debates about whether or not filtering water to make it drinkable is work or whether or not picking small bones from a fish you're eating is work. And it may sound strange to us, but again, these rules were there to help people remember their connection with God. And this guy in the synagogue was likely someone who was so committed that he immersed himself in these debates. And there's something kind of commendable about that. But over-concern with the rules has the potential to blind us. Because where Jesus sees a person, it's possible for us to just see an issue, right? Or where Jesus sees somebody who can be set free, it's possible for us to just see somebody who isn't following the rules like we want them to. Or where Jesus sees potential for new life, it's possible for us to just see potential for debate, The warning embedded in this passage is that sometimes as good and noble and necessary as our religion or our ethics might be, 
they may also blind us to people. People who just want to be set free. People who just want dignity. People who just want a second chance. We need to take that warning seriously, but along with that warning, I think there's also a call embedded in this passage. Because I've found that there are all sorts of us who feel some sort of pull. Like we see a need, or we see something in the world that bothers us, or we feel like we might have some sort of unique skill or unique gift that might be helpful, but we also feel out of place fulfilling that need or exercising those gifts, especially in a religious setting, because we don't really have a grasp on the religious lingo. We don't know the words to the hymns or the creeds. We don't have a Bible verse memorized and tucked away for every circumstance we find ourselves in. We just don't know the rules. Or we know the rules very well because we've broken them a time or 17. Jesus' actions in this passage are a reminder that if we want to make an impact in someone's life or use our gifts to fulfill a need, the starting question isn't, do you know the rules? Do you know the right standards? Are you properly credentialed? The starting question is, do you have eyes? Do you see the need? I mean, all that other stuff is important. It's really important, but sometimes it's also potentially blinding. So, to all my fellow rule-obsessed friends, let's remember to open our eyes. And to all of my issue-obsessed friends, let's remember that behind every issue is a person with a story. And to all my highly credentialed friends, remember when you first saw the need. Remember your calling. Remember that first time. And to all my don't-know-the-rules, don't-know-the-hymns, don't-know-the-creeds friends, remember that you have eyes. And to Jesus, that's the thing that matters. Amen? Amen.